0: Hello and welcome to the JPraz Journal Club in association with Plasta and Icoplast. Join us monthly to hear from the authors themselves about their article in the latest issue of JPRAZ, with critical appraisal and discussion from plastic surgery trainees and experts from around the world. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy this month's episode. Hello everyone, and thank you for joining us for this COVID special edition of the JPRAZ Journal Club. I'm your host, Demetrius Rhesis, and I'm a plastic surgery registrar working in London and president of our UK trainee association called Plastup. Today we'll be reviewing and discussing a very topical article recently published in JPRAS, investigating the safety of major reconstructive surgery during the peak of the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. The article itself is entitled, Safety of Major Reconstructive Surgery During the Peak of the COVID-19 Pandemic in the United Kingdom and Ireland, a multi-centre national cohort study. And we're honored to be joined by several of the co-authors of the article today, and also Mr. Mark Henley as our independent expert. Mr. Mark Henley is a consultant, plastic and reconstructive surgeon working in Nottingham, and he is the immediate past president of BATPRES. And thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Henley. Thank you. We're very honoured to be joined by a number of the co-authors of the article today. The first author is Mr. Nakul Patel. He is a consultant plastic and reconstructive surgeon working in Leicester, and he's also a lecturer at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg in Canada. Thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Patel.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Debbie.
0: And the senior author of the paper is Mr. Venkat Ramakrishnan. He is a Consultant Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeon working at the St. Andrews Centre for Burns and Plastic Surgery in Chelmsford and also a Visiting Professor of Microsurgery at the Anglia Ruskin University. Thank you very much, Mr. Ramakrishnan.
2: Thank you. We're
0: also honoured to be joined by Professor Ashton Mosahibi. He's a Professor of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the Royal Free Hospital in London and also a Professor of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at University College London. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Mosaheebe. Thanks, Timmy. And we're also honored to be joined by Mr. Manny Ragbeard. He's also a consultant plastic and reconstructive surgeon working at the Royal Victoria Infirmary Hospital in Newcastle, and he's also the chair of the UK's specialty advisory committee for plastic surgery. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Ragbeard. Pleasure. And we're also joined by Mr. Manish Mair. He's a head and neck fellow also working in Leicester, and he was the brains behind the statistical analysis for this study. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Mair. And as a co-author, but also as the editor-in-chief of JPRS itself, we're joined as always by Professor Andrew Hart. He's a consultant plastic and reconstructive surgeon working in the Canisburn Plastic Surgery Unit in Glasgow, in Scotland. And thank you as always for joining us, Professor Hart. Thank you. And also for JPRS, we're joined by Miss Karen Lindsay, who's a social media editor for JPRS and a plastic surgery registrar, also working in the Cannesburn Plastic Surgery Unit. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks, Timmy. Last but not least, we're joined by Mr. David Leonard. He will be presenting the article for us today. Mr. Leonard is a senior registrar in the Cannesburn Plastic Surgery Unit and an honorary clinical lecturer at the University of Glasgow. Thank you very much for joining us, David. Thanks, Dewey. Without further ado, I'll hand over to David, who will begin our summary of the article.
3: Well, as Dewey uh, has uh, kindly said in his I- introduction, I'm uh, Going to present a, a brief summary of uh, of this paper by Nicole Patel and colleagues on behalf of the Recon Surge Collaborative, and I suspect that actually many listening today will have been collaborators and contributed data to this study and may well be familiar with its key findings, so I will, I will keep this uh, brief and to the point. During the first wave of the uh, ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, an NHS-wide directive was issued on the 17th of March, which cancelled all non-urgent elective surgery for a period of at least three months. This was supported by studies of surgical patients in in Wuhan and by the International COVID Surge Collaborative, which reported a greater than 20% mortality for COVID-positive patients uh, undergoing surgery, and this clearly caused significant concern. However, the decision to so radically reduce surgical activity was not entirely benign, and undoubtedly there were significant short- to medium-term impacts on patients affected, and have been and will continue to be profound impacts on surgical waiting times, patients, and society as a whole, and likely these will continue for a considerable number of years into the future. So the aim of this study was to analyse the safety and efficacy of major reconstructive surgery during the peak of the first wave of the pandemic. And then using major reconstruction as a barometer, establish the safety of recommencing wider surgical practice in the United Kingdom and Ireland. And finally, to provide surgeons in the UK and Ireland with population and healthcare system-specific data on which to base decisions and to use in counselling their patients. Looking at the methodology, this was a, a multi-center cohort study, which quite possibly undersells the really quite remarkable achievement of having representation from every hospital in the UK and Ireland undertaking major reconstructive surgery. It covered the period between March 1st and May 23rd, 2020, and there were very simple and clearly defined inclusion and exclusion criteria, which were that. To be included, a patient must be undergoing microvascular free tissue transfer, a major pedicle tissue transfer, a major revascularization or replantation procedure between those dates. Exclusions were local pedicle flaps, skin graft as primary reconstruction, and, and anything else in the, the minor reconstruction bracket. Recruitment was undertaken by collaborators in each of the units under direction of the study lead group. Data collection was performer driven and then prior to locking of the data set for analysis, each site's lead collaborator was asked to verify the completeness of the data set in order to ensure that all appropriate consecutive patients were recruited. The data set included patient, operative, personal protective equipment, healthcare and patient outcome variables, And importantly, given that this study period was very early in the COVID experience, the diagnosis could be made either on molecular or on clinical grounds. So in terms of key findings, following exclusions, a total of 418 cases were included, and a 30-day follow-up was achieved for uh, 100% of, uh, of these cases. We see here the overall trend in surgical activity over the study period showing a really dramatic decrease in case numbers from over uh, 60 major reconstructions a week to less than 20 through mid-March. And the Resena sustained near at around the 20 cases a week level until well after the peak of COVID fatalities in late April to early May. During this period, uh, of the 418 total cases included, only 19 patients were COVID-positive, giving a percentage positivity of 4.5%. Turning first to to this group of COVID-positive patients and looking at that in more detail, the headline finding is that there was no 30-day mortality amongst this group. There was, however, one flap loss and two prolonged intensive care unit stays, one of which had their diagnosis of COVID pre-op and the other was diagnosed post-op. Looking at the study population more generally, it was broadly representative of UK population, roughly equal gender distribution, an age range of between 10 and 92 years, 90% white ethnicity. Main indications for surgery were cancer and trauma, consistent with the ongoing moratorium on elective surgical procedures. The COVID positive group did tend to be older, the mean age of 63 years versus 50 for the COVID negative group, and have a higher ASA classification, but otherwise the groups were comparable. Surgery was, as you would expect for our specialty, distributed widely by anatomical region, and the COVID-positive patients were similarly distributed amongst these groups with the exception of the upper limb group in which there were no COVID-positive cases but was a relatively small proportion of the overall caseload. Reconstructions were just under 60% free flaps, 35% major pedicle flaps and 6% replant or major revasc. Looking at the complications across the whole cohort, the major complication rate defined as and dindo grade 3 and above was approximately 20%, with a similar level of minor complications, uh, and dindo uh, 2 and less, and there was no significant difference in the either major or minor complication rates for COVID-positive versus COVID-negative patients. COVID-positive patients did have significantly longer inpatient stay, at 16 versus 12 days. So the overall mortality for the whole group was one patient within the 30-day window, giving an all-cause mortality of 0.2%. And just before we turn to looking at healthcare infections, a brief note on mortality, I think it's worth giving a little more detail there. The single fatality recorded during the 30-day study period was a patient of ASA grade 4 who underwent a neurosurgical resection free flap reconstruction of, uh, of over 17 hours duration. They were COVID negative throughout their treatment, but on day four post-op, experienced a, a CVA and died three days later. Also of note, there was one additional death reported. This occurred just out with the 30-day study period, but in the interest of completeness, it is actually discussed in the paper. This patient had an ASA grade of three with uh, multi-system comorbidities and had undergone coronary artery bypass grafting, which was complicated by sternal dehiscence, requiring multiple debridements and a pedicle to a flap reconstruction. This patient was actually discharged but then readmitted with a diagnosis of COVID on post-op day 10 and succumbed uh, 21 days later on the 31st uh, post-operative day. Turning to healthcare infections, a total of eight healthcare staff had a positive COVID test within two weeks, treating eight separate patients within this study. This gives staph infection rate of just under 2%. Looking at this group in a lot more detail, five of the eight have been involved in head and neck surgery, potentially aerosol generating procedures, and seven of the eight occurred early in the window prior to the introduction of PPE guidelines. So, in summary, this is a large and broadly representative cohort study, looking at patients recruited from every major reconstructive centre in the UK and Ireland during the 12 week peak of the first wave of the ongoing COVID 19 pandemic. Operative outcomes are comparable to data from the pre COVID era, including those reported in the UK National Flap Registry. And I think this is an important study as it is the first to report all cause 30 day mortality. And a consecutively recruited open population with a known denominator, and this sets in contrast to the Wuhan and COVID surge studies, where the recruitment was was limited to COVID positive patients, and which really painted a very different picture. Their twenty percent mortality figures. Thank
0: you very much, David. That was a great summary. really picked up all of the key results. I'll just hand over to Karen now who will ask you a few questions following the CASP guidelines just to have a bit of a formal appraisal of the article itself.
4: Thanks, Demi. And thank you, David, for an excellent summary of unique and very useful paper in my opinion. But we'll go through some of the earlier questions in the CASP Guidance because I think the later questions about utility and how we can apply to practice will come out in the broader discussion with all of the authors as well. So, just a very general opener about validity and the utility of the paper. Was it in a critically appraised manner? Was it a valid study?
3: I think so, absolutely. This paper set out to answer a very clearly defined question under significant time pressure given the potential value of the data in in guiding not only individual surgeon-patient interactions, but also contributing to a system-wide policy discussion of, of how we could best manage surgical provision during this pandemic. It had a clear question, and it took a very focused, pragmatic approach to recruiting patient group to study and to address that question. So absolutely, I think it's it's useful and it's valid and certainly has significant benefits in terms of its utility for our patient population and our, our, the nature of our practice in comparison to either COVID surge or the Wuhan paper.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, David. And You mentioned recruitment there, so just talk us through the recruitment and the verification, which you touched on a bit in your presentation, but just explain how that happened. Sure.
3: For each contributing site, a site lead was identified and a number of other collaborators to undertake the data collection work. The study lead group issued very clear instruction on what the inclusion and exclusion criteria were, patients were then recruited consecutively over the entire study window so this was a mixed retrospective prospective recruitment study which got underway during the window so that does raise some questions you know with some potential for recall bias but i think this was quite heavily mitigated by several several factors one was the very clear inclusion criteria and clear instruction from the lead group. Uh, Another was the relative paucity of uh, reconstructive surgery going on at the time. So I think recall was was fairly clear on the significant cases that were being undertaken in in any individual unit. And finally, the inclusion of a a sign-off prior to the data being locked for analysis, I think is is a useful tool as it. uh, gets the the site lead to sign on the dotted line and and vouch for the validity of the data. And I think that's relevant and important. So in short, it was a pragmatic improvement model, but I think it is inclusive and it was dealt with in a very timely manner. And I think we can have good confidence that the data set is relevant uh, and representative.
4: Excellent. Thank you. And so my final question to you specifically is just about how the paper handled any confounding factors or any limitations, either discussing those that were presented in the paper or any in addition that might be relevant to the listeners today.
3: I've maybe strayed slightly into this territory already with mention of recall bias. I think that potential is there and has to be acknowledged as a limitation. But as I say, I think it's been very effectively handled and mitigated. I don't think there are any other really significant confounders in that this, as the authors state their methodology, was was essentially a national level audit for service evaluation rather than a trial. So the scope was to collect data on the practice that was happening, and they have, they have done that and they've reported on it. Perhaps uh, a little unfair to call it a limitation, but I think as we sit here approaching what we all hope will be the short-lived peak of the second or third wave of this pandemic, I think it would be interesting to look at the long-term follow-up for patients we've looked at during this window, but uh, this was quite clearly a windowed study, and they met their study description, so it's unfair to consider that a limitation, but it's certainly something that would be interesting going forward.
4: David, thank you. I think a lot of the other questions that would follow the CAST guidance are interesting discussion topics that I'm sure will come out in the panel, so Timmy, back to you.
0: Thank you very much, Karen, and thank you, David. That was a great summary and appraisal of the article, and as Karen said, we touched on a few important points already. But I'm conscious that for the first time on a Press Journal Club, we've got all members of the authorship on the Journal Club. So it'd be great to get the thoughts of everyone on the paper, both based on the first wave and what we can do going forwards as well. So I'll hand over to Professor Hart to ask a few more questions of the panel members
5: and the authors.
6: Thanks, Timmy. Mark, do you want to just give any comments you have on this?
5: I have to say, I think that this is an excellent paper and thank you, David, for such a clear summary of it. Embarrassed to say it's my first visit to this journal club, but I think it's an excellent environment and the way it's all been set up is really a way ahead, I think, for our specialty. And it's very nice to be associated with that. In terms of the paper itself, I think the thing that's of fundamental importance was it showed that Elective major surgery could be undertaken in a COVID environment in a safe and effective manner, and that has enabled the restoration of normal practice for cancer treatment and other elective surgery, including some cosmetic, I think, over the time since phase one of COVID. As an aside, I think at the present time, we're in a different situation where there is significant resource overload. And I would have to say, and I think this would be echoed by Ruth Waters as the current president of BACRAS, that at this stage, I think it will have to be all hands on deck and to the pump to address the needs of the health service. There's a lot a recovery that will be required after this and that we should be very caring and supportive of our colleagues and mindful also of the perspectives of society and the population in terms of what we do. However, as I say, this paper is excellent. I think that the the, the group really uh, set out to, to develop a collaborative study that was really groundbreaking. And I would like to think has shown us the way that we might develop our specialty in the future, producing powerful evidence that will influence practice for the better so congratulations to all because i think you've done a terrific job and i think that this has been an excellent paper to, to be um, studying and promulgating as far as we can in 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 this setting
6: great thanks mark um which cunningly segues into my first question to nicole which was, how did you get this to work It's a
1: great question. Yeah, I think it's a real testament to our whole specialty because once the idea was born, slowly we had a small group of us that worked quite cohesively together, dotted around the entire country, and within a short space of time, a lot of phone calls were made between all those within this collaborative group. And before we knew it, we had all 70 centres, you know, over 160 people involved in starting to collect the data. So I think it's a real testament to um to, to our service uh, to, to our specialty, and it shows that if we do put all of our energies together, you know, we can produce some good quality work in a very short space of time.
6: And on the more scientific side, I, I suppose the follow on from that is how secure you feel the data actually is. These projects can become heroically inaccurate or can represent very very good standards of data and obviously the volume of data is good It's, it's then down to how well you think it's been portrayed and perhaps you could comment a bit on that
1: so going into the sort of more fine detail having person within each unit as our main point of call as a lead for the data collection for that unit was very helpful. They then combined all the data for their unit and then submitted it electronically to us. We then had communication with the lead person in that unit to verify the data. The data was input as it was coming in and any gaps, anything that didn't quite match, we were able with our data collection team to go back to that unit to to, to verify that information. Once we had all the data together, I think we felt very confident because we, this was done over a number of sort of ways of communicating, but we also then went back to the the leads at each unit to verify whether any changes had happened, whether there was any mortality after the 30 days. And for any significant information, for example, death, we actually then went back and spoke to the units involved to sort of tease out exactly what had happened. So I think we can be very confident that the data that we collected is accurate. I do take on David's point about recall bias. Some of the data was retrospective, but it was a very small amount of that data. But compared to a lot of other studies, we've really captured most of the activity that's happened within the UK and Ireland.
6: Great. And then the final thing I was just going to ask, Nicole, since you got the main oversight of it, was if you could just comment on why there's such a startling difference between the safety found in this work and the preceding two major papers from Wuhan and COVID surge.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think our paper was probably founded, uh, we wanted to really address that question. So the Wuhan paper and the COVID surge paper suggested mortality rates of twenty one and twenty five percent respectively, which is really very high. I think those papers had a significant recall bias. Just looking at the Wuhan paper, you know we've got such a small number of patients, thirty four patients in the four hospitals in Wuhan at the peak of the crisis, all of whom were female. And so it really begs the question whether that represented what was happening. In fact, the authors had to later communicate back in uh, The Lancet that during that time, 15,000 other surgeries had happened safely. And it really then mm. bores out the exact denominator of surgeries that were taking place. And so I think that those papers didn't have an accurate denominator on which to base their mortality rates. Whereas, given the fact we were able to consecutively look at all operations within a 12-week period within their defined geographic area, I think our mortality rate is accurate for our population.
6: Great. Thank you. Fincat, maybe I could turn to you. It's going to become like family fortunes that's working around everybody. Um Do you feel that major reconstruction is completely safe is there anything further we can do beyond what we were doing when the study was going on here to make it more safe more robust and how could we keep that safety and get back to the sort of efficiency that we were used to
7: before yes uh, this uh, we need to wind back march 2020 uh, everything came to a st- halt crashing halt and it was surgery plus covid equals mortality that's how we started intuitively it didn't feel right and of course uh, the general surgical frustration of not being able to help our patients, that was the driver. And as it was mentioned before, the strength of the paper was the total cooperation of the whole plastic surgical uh, group in the UK and Ireland. So that is the success of this particular paper and uh, this because of the collaborators. And with regards to doing surgery, yes, it is safe. We have found it is safe. And at that time, we didn't have proper PPE provisions and we didn't have covid testing we didn't have the green pathways which have been established now in most hospitals so i think it's even more safer but the problem now is as mark uh, alluded to it's not the fear of being able to operate on patients it is depletion of resources lack of personnel and theatres and uh, of course ventilators and anesthetists so this is what is going to stop us but In that context, it's even more important, I think, because this allows us to, at least in our unit at the moment, we are able to do microsurgical work in small private hospitals outside, wherever there is a little bit of capacity still there until such time as it gets completely uh, swamped. Because it, there is a tendency to sort of, in anticipation, stop work. So I think this has become a good weapon for us to go and push, no, 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 there's nothing wrong in operating. As long as you have staff, let us operate. So that's been a good thing for us, locally at least.
6: And do you think those small, small centres can be safe for major reconstructive surgery?
7: Certainly, we have been doing breast reconstructive surgery that kind of thing, fit patients, they which fall into priority two, We can justify doing them in smaller establishments. And of course, head and neck surgery is still continuing in the, the bigger hospital because uh, we are a bit more confident now. There have been, other than this paper, there have been quite a few papers from colorectal, hepatobiliary, and so on to say that major surgeries could be undertaken in amber stroke green areas, and still the patient can have good results. So, I think this is going to be the way we are going to function for the next three, four months. We have to continue to serve our patients despite the problems we have.
6: Great, thank you. Manny. this is quite a data set and you did did the bulk of the statistics. Do do you want to just comment on any aspects of that that you think are particularly pertinent and how it was uh, condensed into a readable set of numbers that we can interpret and what things stood out to you in particular?
8: So I think the data set was quite robust, as Nakul said, you know, and, and I think we have gone back and forth to so many people who have given us the data to make it more robust, I suppose. I think it's a good paper. However, there are few many questions which are still unanswered, I feel. We, we definitely know now that in a COVID scenario, a normal surgery is safe, and we have proved it by multiple papers, and this is one of them. However, there are still questions unanswered whether what happens if the patient is COVID positive. And you know, all the papers which are there, which are basically either they have all COVID positive, there are few, I mean, the are few who have not gone undergone surgery, it's a recall bias. So and most of the paper doesn't actually say that the COVID positive state was pre-surgery or post surgery. And what is their impact, whether post surgery positivity is a major impact or pre-surgery positivity of COVID has a major impact. Secondly, most of the paper also doesn't tell us that what is the safe approach if the patient is COVID positive pre-surgery. So I think this is the only paper I, I was looking at where it showed that 10 days of waiting period after the COVID positive test gives a safe approach towards the patient. But I spoke to a few of the other hospitals which were actually looking at doing some D-dimer tests, 2D echo and CT scan before taking them to surgery because the chances of thrombosis in such patient is higher. So whether any cardiopulmonary event can happen or not can be reassessed once the patient is COVID positive and whether we want to take him to surgery again. So I think there's a lot of unanswered questions still for a COVID positive patient going into surgery. However, with a COVID negative test, the patient is definitely safe to undergo surgery in this present scenario. I am looking at, mainly I'm a cancer surgeon, so I was looking at some cancer surgeries which are done during this period, and I was looking at the data, which actually are only three or four studies which have showed a mortality which is quite high, as we are talking about the Chinese paper and the COVID surge paper, which has ranged, the mortality in those paper is ranging from around 30 to 71%, but the remaining all studies are showing 0% mortality because they have taken precautions most of the patients in that study are post-operative COVID positive. So there's still a lot of unanswered question which we need to explore. And I think such collaborative studies might help us further to give an answer to it.
6: Thank you. Uh, Mani, I come to you next? So as the as the head and neck surgeon of the, the panel, you've probably been exposed to more COVID risk than any of the rest of us. Do you want to just comment on how operator safety and, and protocols for safe microsurgery have evolved through that and the relevance of this work?
2: Yeah, so um, when Venkat approached me with a with concept, um, I was already doing head and neck and sarcoma surgery, which I do, which we were compelled to do really for patients and we were not having any problems. And then the Wuhan paper came out and from what I was experiencing, And what I was reading, they were very diverse. And so I was quite keen to be involved in this just to find out what the safety was. We were, at that time, planning protocols for head and neck. We were thinking about testing patients. The tests weren't ready yet, but we were using PPE and we were intubating patients, leaving the operating theater. It was the first time I was learning about air cycles in theater, when we could leave, when we could get in. We were told that we could raise free flaps, fibulas, radial forearms without having to worry. And it was only the head and neck resection, which were AGPs, that we were using the full PPEs for. Even up to now, up to now, when we've been working straight through from March, we still haven't had a COVID death. We've had one patient, positive, post-up, who had absolutely no symptoms whatsoever and walked out of theatre. And we are operating on really elderly patients, eighties, nineties. You know, as in head and neck, as you would do. So I suspected that the literature wasn't in keeping with actual practice, and so I was keen to help in any way if we could show that.
6: And the data in the study here was showing a pretty favourable evidence in terms of healthcare staff infection but The majority were head and neck surgeons. Did, do you think that was genuinely a head and neck problem, or that they were just being infected prior to the availability of FFP and so forth?
2: Okay, so at this point, I think I should probably say that I've been, um, I've been, been ridden, ridden for two weeks and then ill for another two weeks. So I've been ill for a month with COVID. Have you? Uh, oh, yeah, and in that month. Two weeks, it was a bit touch and go. I was was managed at home um, with, you know, um, saturation monitors and and close association. I I don't, I assume it was from work, but but you can't, you know, in this environment, you can't really see where you got it. No, I don't think anybody can. So my patients have been well. (laughs) I, on the other hand, haven't been, haven't done as well as my patients. And had, had you had any positive patients? Once testing started, all our patients were tested. Are tested uh, 48 hours before. So we haven't operated on anybody who has been positive. If they have been positive, they've waited for two weeks and then had the operation. And we have had one patient postoperatively who was negative pre-op and positive post-op. And that patient was elderly and had a major head and neck operation with a free tissue transfer, and he was asymptomatic, Mm -hmm. post up, and walked out of hospital.
6: So, yeah, so you probably have picked it up on a different route, haven't you?
2: Sounds pretty uh,
6: sobering, the effect that's had on you. I suspect quite a lot of us are getting a slightly blase about it after the duration of time that's gone on at work. Um, So, yeah, but you're feeling better now.
2: Right. I'm fine, thanks very much. And I'm I'm back to work. And mm-hmm. in fact, I did uh two head and neck free flaps this week already.
6: Right, good man. Done. <laughs> thanks. So. Anything else about the experience of having COVID you'd want to share?
2: Try not to get it. <laughs> <laughs>
8: okay.
2: Get if, it, if, it, if you do get it, for me it was primarily pain, really, myalgia.
9: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, a lot of analgesics and and fluids and make sure you have a good physician friend who you can call and be on the phone too, which I, which is what I did.
6: Yep. well, very glad that you have recovered. Hank, could I come to you next? One of the issues about COVID is that hypercoagulability, and I think you're probably a better place to comment on how that impacts reconstructive surgery than the rest of us.
9: So that was a concern when that information first came out about the hypercoagulability and its effect it might have on flap reconstruction, particularly microvascular flaps. It doesn't seem to have translated into a greater degree of flap loss. It hasn't changed our practice in terms of us increasing the anticoagulation in the in our patients who we know are at least our um, COVID negative at the time that we're operating on them. We did have one case in our cohort where we did have a flap loss, and that patient. Did turn out to be COVID positive. So that's a convenient excuse for the flap loss, but I, I don't think it related actually. Mm-hmm. So there's no strong evidence that it, that it affects the microvascular surgery. But equally, there hasn't been a large number of COVID-positive cases that have been that have had gone on to have free flaps.
6: And from your perception of it all, do you think there's any basis to change practice to be more conservative or away from free tissue transfer to pedicle for lower limb sarcoma?
9: I don't think so. I think the only change in practice really is that we've probably doubled up some of the operating just to make it make the operating episode faster. So where some of them may previously have been single surgeon, you know, sequential procedures will now get drafting some help in order to speed up the procedure, but that's largely for logistical reasons because of operating time scarcity within the background uh, knowledge that you know obviously if you make someone's operation as short as possible, I think their um recovery is going to be f- faster and better, and everybody's just much
6: happier. Okay, great. And um, in general terms to everybody. How do you think this data can best be employed
7: so that we don't lose ground permanently in delivering services? I suppose that the question about uh, mortality and uh, surgery that's been answered by this paper and a few other papers since, I don't think that'll be a problem today with the second wave. It is about getting adequate space to be able to operate. And what Hank mentioned is so important. If you are going to use these resources and continue to provide this microsurgery for our patients and so on, you need to be very slick and uh, 2 team operating and try to do these things quickly because we have come across that in our own setup. There has been lots of barriers placed and we were we were pushed to do more cases in a list, otherwise we won't be able to get our patients treated. So I think this is going to be the case for a while. It's not only going to be a case for a while, sooner, even after recovery, there's going to be so much of waiting of P3 cases. So delayed reconstructions and things like that will get affected so much. So, it's the efficiency is paramount for the next maybe five six years. We need to be much more efficient than we have been. We'll be forced to. Okay, thank you. And then again, to anybody, clearly the, the
6: the elephant in this discussion is the vaccine, which none of us have spoken to. So you know, my impression is that so far we don't really know how well the vaccine will work in real world. We don't know how long it would work for. And we don't know the effect on transmission. Anyone want to comment on how that might affect, but not so much safety, because you've already shown safety is very high, but maybe the pathways and extending major procedures out to amber pathways or non-tested patients if they've been vaccinated?
9: So, uh, for example, we've put a bid in so that our particularly head and neck cancer patients, for example, could get vaccinated before their operation whilst they're being worked up. At the moment, that's not been permitted because vaccination priority decisions are being made centrally. But we've sort of fed that back up to centre saying, you know, there are cohort of patients who perhaps would benefit from being vaccinated preoperatively in the current climate.
3: I think, Prof, the short answer to your question is that time will tell. While the Vaccine trials have very effectively demonstrated the safety and efficacy of the, the vaccines that are coming online in a general population term. Uh, what the impact of that will be on transmission rates uh, and on the ability to, to modify current amber-green uh, pathways is quite a long way in the future.
6: Demi, Karen, is anything you want to take further?
0: No, that's been a great discussion. Thank you so much, Prof. Heart. That was really interesting to hear everyone's thoughts and just to reflect on what this work means for our specialty and how we can hopefully take some of this forward as we re-establish services during this wave as well. Just from my perspective, I had one more question if I if I could ask. Um, as a trainee, I guess one other elephant in the room is, is training and the effective training from all of this. And perhaps if I could ask Mr. Ragbir first as the SAC chair it's been well documented the effects on training of all these changes associated with covid and mr ramakrishnan rightly says that we have to be more efficient and have two team operating perhaps two consultant operating as well and what are the main issues that you've experienced from a training perspective and perhaps what advice would you have for trainees to try to maximize their training at the same time as prioritizing patient safety
2: there's 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 going to be a problem with getting logbook numbers i know that we are working on it, we are thinking about ways in which to overcome it. But at the end of the day, we need the operating theater. And if, if there's no operating theaters to get trainees into, then there's no way to, to deal with that. However, there are still going to be cases going on. And, and what I've said to people, all the training program directors, is that there is a training opportunity everywhere. Even if there are two consultants operating in a theater, with with major cases and microvascular reconstruction, they are both going to be doing two things separately. For example, in head and neck, there's a resection going on with a neck dissection. There's a free flap being elevated, and there will be opportunities for trainees to getting there and at the very least do parts of the operations. There are certain bits of operations where whether a trainee does it or a consultant does it, the pace of the operation is there. In some cases, for example, if you're doing a head and neck resection and you're raising a flap, the flap is not going to be time limited. It is a resection that will, will limit the, the time of the operation. So a trainee could easily raise the flap. You know, there's there's not going to be anyone who is going to take four hours to raise a radial forearm flap while a major neck dissection and reconstruction is going on. So there will be opportunities and trainees have to get in there. I have told TPDs already. I have spoken to educational supervisors, and that is the best we can do at the moment. Even the, the simulation courses, are, uh, centers are being closed, and we are looking at that to see if we can get those open up. But at the moment, work is going on, and all I can say to the trainees is find that work and and be there and learn as much as you can until you know we can find a way to reopen the country. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. That's really important. And yeah, we have to be adaptable
0: and make the most of each opportunity, I guess, even with the focus on patient safety, of course. So thank you so much for that. Karen, did you have anything you wanted to say as well?
4: Um, I guess my question was um, more about how we keep the spirit of this piece of work alive, particularly with COVID in terms of new variants coming up and, and how we're all going to have to adapt practice as that may continue to happen. You very effectively did this the first time around. Is there any capacity or appetite to, to, to do it ag- again if we need to?
3: Yeah, I
1: I, um, I think that's a really great question, Karen. Um, we've got a really good, strong, uh, collaborative group now, and um, I think that if we do have any questions, burning questions that we think that as a as a as a as a group, as a you know as as the nations, then I think we can certainly brainstorm them within um, within our collaborative group, and I think we have the network established to be able to undertake these questions probably even more quickly than we did the first time, because we understand the process now. Um, so I'd be quite confident that that would be very doable.
6: Yeah, my, my only other comment was was just along that same line, just to, to thank you for kicking this off. And um, I know I'm listed there, but I've done a tiny bit of the work. You guys did all the work really, and you should be really proud of what you've achieved. It's a phenomenal job.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you Andy Yeah
0: that's been a great discussion I think that's a very nice way to end it Um, and thank you very much for obviously the time put into making this whole study possible and then having the opportunity as well Prof Hart to explore it in more detail in this journal club as well I'd just like to say thank you as well to David for your summary and appraisal of the article Pleasure, thank you And thank you as always to Karen for your wise questions and critical appraisal as well
4: Pleasure thank you.
2: And thank you as well Mr. Ragbeer. you're welcome. can, can I just say that any trainees who have any ideas about how to increase their experience to so please contact me and we will look at it. Yes, we're working on this from a plaster perspective as
0: well, so we'll be in touch and collate all the thoughts from the trainees who you as well. so thank you so much for that. Thank you as well Manish Mair, for um, your great work in the statistical analysis especially
8: and for your comments tonight. Thank you. Can I have one more question as to the panelists, if we have time? Yeah, absolutely. I think nowadays a lot of patients are going to ask us that if I'm vaccinated today, I'm okay to have a surgery tomorrow. So what are your consensus on that? I've got such questions now already. So I'm asking you guys, what do you feel?
3: I suppose maybe I should take that, putting my immunology hat on. I think the answer can be very clear following vaccination, you need an absolute minimum of 10 days to have any sort of reliable immune response. And ideally, if you could wait a period of three weeks following vaccination, that would be a a safer ballpark figure for a a patient to have confidence that they would have uh, some enhanced immunity to COVID
8: as a result of the vaccine. So so that's for the elective surgeries. What about the urgent cancer surgeries which we are dealing with? We can't wait four weeks. Um,
3: For those, I I think we should be continuing uh, really as we have been and taking uh, confidence from the data in this paper that the infection and prevention and control pathways um, that are in place in our hospitals facilitate uh, safe surgery um, for those patients that need it uh, in the current conditions.
0: Thank you very much Manish Um, and thank you as well to Prof Hart for um, making this possible as we said and also for your work in the study directly as well.
6: No problem, thank you.
0: And thank you also to Nakul Patel for driving this forward and really um, bringing the whole country together to make this collaborative effort possible and of, of course your hard work to make the write-up possible as well, so thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you as well Mr Ramakrishnan, we know that you uh, this on from the start and has driven this again on a national level. So thank you so much um, for your wisdom as well tonight. Thank you very much, Dimmy. We're getting a lot of thank yous from the um audience as well. So thank you very much for joining us this evening. Um and we look forward to seeing you for the next JPREZ Journal Club. Thank you for listening to this month's JPRES Journal Club. Please send your thoughts and further questions to us on social media using the hashtag JPressJournalClub. The article discussed today is freely available at JPrazsurge.com, with special thanks to the JPress editorial team and our guest author for making this possible. You can also find out more about Plaster and Icoplast on social media and our websites which are plaster.org and icoplast.org. We look forward to hearing from you and see you next month for another episode of JPress Journal Club.